Good morning. <laughs> uh, for those of you who, as, as Kevin mentioned, we're in a series right now. So for those of you who haven't been around, uh, we are discussing what is called the wisdom literature in the Bible. And the wisdom literature is essentially a set of books that discusses the question, how do we live well? So it's a, a very simple question, but each book has a different perspective. And today we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And I, I have to be honest with you, I think that Kevin chose this entire series only to get me to preach. It was part of an evil master plan. Uh, because I've always told him that I had absolutely no interest in preaching whatsoever, but he knows that I love the book of Ecclesiastes. It is my favorite book in the Bible. And it, it's my favorite book for a few reasons. One is that it's very dark. It deals with a lot of really heavy things in life, which is something that I love, I guess. Um, and it's also just beautifully written. There's a lot of amazing language in the book of Ecclesiastes. You might recognize some of the, some of the phrases, chasing after the wind, a time for everything, a time to die, a time to be born. These are phrases that kind of permeate our art and culture, but they came from the book of Ecclesiastes. And the other reason that I love this book is just because it's good wisdom. Like whether you're a Christian or not, it's, it's great commentary on what it means to live life as a human being. And so, um, you know, I guess you're here on a good day if you're not really sure about this whole Christianity thing, uh, because at least the first half of my sermon uh, deals with simply what it means to live life as a human being on this earth. Before I dive into Ecclesiastes, I thought I'd share something because as Kevin mentioned, I haven't been, a lot of you don't know me that well because I haven't been as involved in the church for the last couple of years as uh, we started a family. Uh, so a random tidbit about me that some of you may know if you know me well. I have a bizarre love of swing sets. Yes, like a child. Um, I have loved swings and swinging since I was a tiny girl, and I, it just never left me. I still love it to this day. I sort of rediscovered this passion when Kevin and I were first married and we were living in Kansas City. There was a little park across from our house, and I loved it so much. We would walk across and, and swing together there. It was lovely and romantic. Um, but uh, when we moved to D.C., I thought, well, I need to find a new park to do this in. And we walked around all of the parks in our neighborhood, and none of them had swing sets, or if they did, they were for tiny little bodies, go figure. Um, and so I, I, I have one piece of advice for you today. This is wisdom from Charla, not the book of Ecclesiastes. But uh, if you're ever looking for a swing set, don't Google the words adult swinging and public park all in a row. I mean, just don't do it. You're not gonna find out about swing sets, okay? And I say that from experience. Um, so when we're traveling, Kevin often finds swing sets uh, or swings for me to enjoy around the world. It's, it's kind of one of our things. And recently we were in LA and he took me to this uh, park. It's sort of like the Rock Creek Park of LA, if you will. Uh, it's like, feels very wild, but it's right in the middle of the city. And we walked up to the top of this hill and when we got up there, there was this cliff overlooking the city with this beautiful wooden swing hanging in this scraggly old tree. It was like 
perfect for me. And so um, I had this just lovely moment of enjoying the view and, and feeling like kind of free. Like I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of a nerd. Like I just feel sort of free, like I'm soaring like a bird when I'm on swings. And I've thought a lot about actually why do I like this so much? And I think it's because I am the sort of person for whom the angst of life, the darker things, they sit with me more heavily than other people, more pervasively. And uh, so sometimes you'll see me at a party and I'm enjoying myself and then I'm thinking, this is all gonna end, I'm gonna die. <laughs> Get it together, Charla. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope you don't notice those moments. Uh, I try to keep it together. Uh, but I think that's the reason that I love the book of Ecclesiastes as well. And I know I'm not the only person who experiences these moments. You might not experience them as heavily or as often as I do, but all of us have these moments in life where we experience the angst, the meaninglessness, the heaviness of life. Um, you know, even if you're generally happy, at some point in life, we will encounter a situation. A loved one dies, we lose a job, we go through some sort of turmoil. And it's sort of a glitch in our worldview. Those moments uh, kind of make all of the meaninglessness of life kind of come back rushing in, even if we've put them all away. Ecclesiastes addresses this by saying, you're right, life is meaningless. Oh. You think that you're young and fit and beautiful living in Washington, D.C.? Well, your beauty is fading, your health is diminishing, and you will die. <laughs> you just got that new job that you've been working for for years? You might not even have the chance to enjoy it. What if you get cancer tomorrow? Seriously, what if you get cancer tomorrow? It's one of those things that we all put away from us but, but it haunts us. Let's go ahead and look at the scripture passage for today. You'll see what I mean. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse nine. I became greater, far greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing in my eyes. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while fools walk in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Is anybody depressed yet? I only agreed to do this so that I could just throw a wet blanket all over your weekend. Uh, <laughs> what makes Ecclesiastes such powerful literature and the reason that I think it's so important is that it does not ignore the harsh realities of life. 
Psalms 90.12 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the purpose of Ecclesiastes. And I believe that if we will take this journey with the author, that while we will experience that angst, we will eventually come to a place of hope and find the meaning in life. So let's dive into Ecclesiastes a little bit. As I mentioned, Ecclesiastes is a part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. Um, and we've been going through these books slowly over the past few weeks. We started out with Proverbs, which is a very kind of black and white way of viewing the world, a very black and white perspective on wisdom. It deals in probabilities. So you say the righteous will live a long life. They will flourish. The wicked will suffer. The next week we talked about Job, and Job questions that premise. He says, Yep, maybe it's more likely that if you're a good person, good things will happen to you, but I've seen different. I've seen the righteous suffer. I've seen the wicked flourish. And I've suffered a lot in my own life. The thing is that we learn from Job that there's a lot more going on in the world, that it's more complex than we know. And we just have to trust God in the midst of it. Ecclesiastes is different. And this is why I love it. It's sort of like a nihilist got a hold of the book of the Bible and just went nuts all over the thing. Um, it has two characters, an author and a teacher. The author is only with us for the beginning and the end, just a few verses at the beginning of the book and a few verses concluding the book. And his job really was to compile the work of the, the teacher. So most of what we hear is from the teacher. And... Let's, let's actually talk about sort of what the gist of his teaching is. I think Ecclesiastes 1-2 sums it up. Meaningless, 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 says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Lesson one. Life is meaningless. You cannot find ultimate meaning in any of the major pursuits in life. You can try, but it's an exercise in futility. So pleasure and money and wisdom and sex and even religion and family. If you try to find your meaning in life in these things, it just won't work. So you travel, you have sex, you eat great food, you drink great wine, and then you come home to your crappy little apartment in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I've seen some of your Instagram feeds, I know. <laughs> Now, why does he come to this conclusion? Well, he's really examining all of life against three concepts. And those things are time, chance, and death. Such light topics. He says, the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. This is his argument. When considered in the light of all of the harsh realities of life, time, chance, and death, everything is meaningless. So how does he go about arguing this? Well, there are three words that we need, or three concepts we need to understand to really get his argument. And the first of those is hevel. And this is a Hebrew word. It occurs 38 times, I think, in the book, which it's a short book, only 12 short chapters. 
The, it's typically translated meaningless uh, in English, but that doesn't really capture it. Most literally translated, it means something like vapor or smoke. What the teacher is saying is that we pursue something. We think it's there. It seems to have substance, but we can't grasp it. Everything in life, every pursuit, every pleasure, every accomplishment, every relationship, everything that happens to you, every season in your life, it's an absurd, fleeting, pointless vapor. Smoke to be carried off by the wind. The second concept is the phrase under the sun, and this occurs 29 times in the book. What he means by this is that our life on earth, the lived life here, what is under the sun. Throughout the book, he argues that life here on earth under the sun is hevel. It's meaningless smoke. And you might take this literally and say like, okay, well, I guess I just need to get off the earth. I'm gonna invest in some commercial space travel and I'll get out of here. But I guarantee you, if you are so lucky as to be able to do that, the first thing you're gonna do is get out your camera and take a picture of yourself with the earth in the background because from dust you came and to dust you will return. You cannot escape the realities of this earth. Time, chance, and death will catch up with all of us. The last word is toil. And some translations use the word work, but what he means by this is that we all make attempts throughout our life to find meaning and purpose, and this is our toil. Some of us work in jobs that mean a lot to us and we hope that they'll find, uh, help us find that ultimate purpose. Some of us go after relationships and that's how we find meaning. Some of us toil really hard to be righteous, to do good, to make the world a better place, and we hope that helps us find meaning. Toil is our work here under the sun. So now that we've talked about the key concepts, how does he actually go about proving his argument? Well, he does it by experimentation. He tries pursuing meaning under the sun in many different ways. Look at verse 12 in chapter one. He says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has placed on me. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. Throughout the course of the book, he's gonna experiment with pleasure. He'll try to fill himself with hedonism, money. He'll try to fill his pockets with cash, power, fill his ego with might, wisdom, fill his mind with knowledge, righteousness. He'll fill his spirit with ethics and religion. Even relationships, those things that we all try to tell ourselves are the things that give us ultimate meaning, even if the rest of that fails us. He experiments with those and also finds that with every single one of these things, it breaks down and eventually the meaning is carried off in the wind. For example, in chapter two, he says, I wanted to see what is good for people to do under the sun all the day of their lives. I said to myself, come on now, I'll test you with pleasure. But that also proved meaningless. So he says, I'm gonna try pleasure hedonism. And pleasure is fun and it's great. And you can try pleasure and you will maybe get distraction, you'll maybe be numbed. You might even get some good endorphins going in your brain. You'll feel good in the moment. 
but you won't find meaning. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Time, chance, death. He says, okay, what about work, wealth, power? I'll try those things. And he finds that one of the worst things you can do, one of the worst things that can happen to you is that you spend a lifetime laboring to build wealth, to build a legacy, and then you have to hand that off to another person who doesn't appreciate your work and probably doesn't use it wisely, the trust fund kid. He also says, I'll try wisdom. You know, I'll try some of the pursuits that people think are higher in life. And, and he concludes being wise is good. Being wise is better than being foolish. Being smart is better than being stupid. And I, I don't think anyone would argue with that. But he also says that the more that you know about life, the wiser you are, the more of a bummer it is. So, I mean, it's kind of like when you WebMD something. Uh, you know, like, you're like, ah, I, I did not need to know that. Uh, Kevin is a hypochondriac, actually, and so he's always WebMDing everything. And I'm like, please just stop looking at this stuff. It's going to drive you crazy. The, the more knowledge we gain in life, the more knowledge we have of everything that's wrong and of our, our own meaninglessness. So then he turns to righteousness, to religion. That must be where the meaning's at. These things are good, so I'll try those. Yet he says, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these things, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. He's saying there aren't any guarantees. It's good to be righteous. It's good to do good, yes. But don't think that it is going to bring you some set result. There are no guarantees. And, and he says, even if all of these things are working out well for you, you're a really wise person, um, you're really smart, that seems to be working out well for you, you're, you're really good, you work at the food pantry every week. The righteous person suffers and struggles just as much as the wicked person does, sometimes even more. And he says, with relationships, sort of the final, the final thing he experiments with, the thing that we all think will most give us meaning, he says, those, those feel great in the moment as well. And he says, they're good. You should, you should pursue those. You should love your family. You should love your friends. You should enjoy them. But don't think that they will ultimately fulfill you. Everything under the sun is meaningless. One day you may be happily married. The next day your spouse has left you. One day you may have great friends. The next day they may move away. One day you may have a beautiful baby at home. A few years later, they might turn into a mass murderer. But cheer up, they could be one of the lucky ones that doesn't get caught. Okay, that was too morbid. <laughs> it's a problem for me. Um, there are no guarantees of anything in life. 
time, chance, and death will eventually destroy your best efforts to create a meaningful life. The question is only when. So he comes to this conclusion. Chapter 217, so I hated life. What do people get for all of the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain, and even at night their minds do not rest. This too is hevel. After observing all of this, he offers this wisdom to us. A person can do nothing better than to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too is from the hand of God, for without him you can who can, find, who can eat or find enjoyment? He says, whatever way you're toiling, just enjoy the pursuit. Enjoy the hunt because that's all you have. You're never going to catch anything. And, and this is wise. It's honest. It's despairing. But it's wise. With this view, actually chapter 10 verse 19 becomes the mantra of life. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Did anybody hear that and go, life verse? It's a nice one. In the teacher's worldview, nothing is guaranteed. So whatever we get in life that is good or pleasant is a gift. It's simply something to be appreciated. So what are the characteristics of someone who learns to number their days, in the words of the psalmist? Well, I would argue, based on Ecclesiastes, that they include gratefulness, humility, and presentness. I'm not sure if that's a word. I just went with it. Um, Gratefulness, uh, the teacher models for us. He views everything. There are moments in in the book where he he comes to the point where he says everything is meaningless, and then you can see these glimpses where you see that he, he views everything as a gift, a gift from God. And he's just grateful and satisfied for that which time, chance, and death permit him to have for even a moment. He also approaches the world with a really striking humility. I think his remarks about his experiments with righteousness and wisdom are particularly good examples of this. Because we all know how good it can make us feel to be good people at least in our own eyes. So we watch the news, we see all of the horrible things that all of the awful people in the world do, and it's sad, but it also kind of makes us feel a little good about ourselves. And he says, that's silliness, it's it's meaningless. Because if we acknowledge that life here under the sun is hevel, if we do not deny the the fact that the end of the righteous person and the end of the awful person are the same, that they're both equally subject to time, chance, and death, that the righteous person often benefits less than the awful one, who are we to feel superior? He also encourages us to be present in whatever moment, whatever season we're in, to live it, because it's all we've got in this meaningless world. He says that there's a season for everything. And this is probably the most famous passage from Ecclesiastes. In chapter 3, he says, There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. He goes on listing all of the seasons of life. It's, It's a beautiful poem if you haven't read it. And then he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. 
And this is one of the biggest problems I think our generation has, that we haven't learned this lesson. Blaise Pascal said, we're never satisfied with the present. We anticipate the future as too slow in coming, as if we can hasten its course, or we recall the past to stop its too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that are not ours and do not think of the only time which actually belongs to us. We are so idle that we dream of those times which are no more and we thoughtlessly overlook the time which exists. So what does this mean? Those of you who are working, maybe you have a great job and you love it. Maybe you hate it and you're bored out of your mind. Appreciate it. Appreciate this season of life. Appreciate that your body and your mind are capable of doing this work, even this boring work. Singles, don't embrace the myth that another person will fulfill you. It's chasing after the wind. And if you spend your single years singly chasing another person, you will waste some of the best years of your life. You're in this season now, live it. To those of you who have a partner or children, enjoy them. The, the author says enjoy them, that, that this is one of the beauties of life. But, and, and he also says basically, don't, don't trade those relationships for things that will pass away, for the boat that will eventually die, the house that someone else will live in. He says that you'll get to a stage in life where you will trade all of that for something that outlives you. And this is wise. Enjoy the season you're in, but don't forget that the other seasons are coming. Those of you who are beyond that, don't run off to some retirement thing, to the lake only. You are the only ones that have the wisdom of what it means to live a life and know how silly it is to pursue things that you think will give you ultimate meaning. You say, well, I didn't actually do it all right. Okay, be a bad example then. Be something, live in this season, inhabit it, do your life. Now that will preach. It may not be easy for us to live, but it will preach. In fact, it's preaching all over. It's all over the self-help books, it's everywhere. And I think it resonates because it is wise, but this too is hevel. Because the present moment is hevel. It's smoke. It will eventually be carried off. And this leads us to one of the biggest problems of our age, anxiousness. In chapter two, the teacher calls it anxious striving. Because if you don't know why you're here or what you're living for and you have no real meaning, then the moment becomes the meaning. The moment you're living for is all you get and if that is true, then your greatest fear in life is the fear of missing the moment, FOMO. And most of us have really bad FOMO. I see it all over social media. It's rooted in this idea that life has no meaning. And the, the problem is that Unless we're doing the absolute best thing in the moment, then we feel like our life is meaningless. And then we're looking at other people's Instagram accounts, and their life is meaningless, my life is not meaningless. <laughs> and the problem with this serious anxiety is that it will haunt you and you will not find a way 
to stop time. You will not find a way to preserve that moment. You'll try to take that picture to prove to yourself that you were in the moment. You'll look back at it. Ah, I was in the moment. But while you're looking at it, you're not in the current one. There's no way to preserve it. There's no way to escape time, chance, and death. I'm a new parent, and we subject new parents to this kind of language all the time in a really sort of specially awful kind of way. So what do we say to new parents? We'll say stuff like, oh, enjoy every moment. They're growing up so fast. They're so fragile. And the... (laughs) I took this a little too much to heart as a new parent, which is probably a symptom of my own bizarre neuroses in life. But I I remember after Eloise was born, being up at like 3 a.m. I'm exhausted, I've had surgery, and I'm feeding her and rocking her, and I start to fall asleep. I'm like, don't miss the moment, Charla. Don't do it. Look at her precious little face. It's so beautiful. Oh my gosh, did I forget already what her precious little face looked like in that moment? What am I gonna do? She's gonna graduate from college soon. It was ridiculous, but it's true. Blaise Pascal says, the fact is that the present is generally painful to us. So we conceal it from our sight because it troubles us. And if it happens to be delightful to us, we only regret to see it pass away. The truth is that the words of the teacher are wise, and we should heed them. But the world that we live in, this world of Hevel, will lead to anxiety, because we're all longing for something more. And that's where the author's words come in. He rejoins the conversation at the end of the book, And he says that the teacher's words are like a goad, a sharp, pointy stick. And he's jabbing us with the words. The author thinks it's important that we have our illusion dismantled. But he ends the book by saying there is something beyond the sun. There's more than meets the eye, something which gives meaning and purpose to life. He ends the book by saying in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He's saying, even though my every deed may not have a guaranteed outcome in my lifetime, even though everything here under the sun is hevel, even though I can't escape time and chance and death, Everything I do will ultimately be weighed. God will clear the hevel. One day the smoke will be lifted and everything will be made right. The wisdom to this book is to adjust your expectations of life here under the sun and therefore your approach to living. If you take both the teacher and the author seriously, not only will you live gratefully, humbly, and presently, but you will avoid a world of anxiousness. You will be able to enjoy the glimpses of meaning that God gifts us in this world of heaven without that 
nagging sensation. You can enjoy your work, your food, your friendships, sex, learning, even doing good as the small gifts that they are and without the pressure to make them your everything. So I'll end with the words that the teacher ends with in chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. Enjoy the gifts that God has allowed you, the time and the season that he has placed you in. Enjoy good meals, good wine with great friends. Watch the children that God has placed around you grow, help mold them. Learn, create, challenge. Work hard while your body and your mind will allow you. But don't forget that time, chance, and death will equal us all. So also make sure that you invest in something that outlasts you. And when the smoke comes rushing in, when it feels as if all is lost and everything you've put your life into is meaningless, trust the God who created you, whose understanding is bigger than yours, who will one day make all things right in this meaningless world. Let's pray. God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to appreciate the small gifts that you've given us. Teach us to invest in life beyond our own. And be with us in the moments when the smoke has surrounded us. Bring all things right in the world. In your name we pray. Amen.